You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. This is Randy Bolander on the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Glad to be with you today on what is the third of three days of celebration in the Bolander home. This is what's gone on the last couple of days. Two days ago, Zion turned 19. Zion is living at home, taking some college classes, and is gainfully employed. For this, oh Lord, we thank you. Uh, And so he's busy. And then yesterday, Piper turned 11, which means for a short period of time, until September, I have three 11-year-old girls until the twins turn 12. So if you if your prayer list is a little short, you might want to throw that on the bottom there. Three 11-year-old girls with all that that means. Just let that soak into you for a minute. Okay, so Zion's birthday, Piper's birthday, and today, Kelsey and I celebrate 31 years of marriage. 31 years ago today, we were married at Tri-County Assembly of God in beautiful Fairfield, Ohio, Route 4, just north of, I guess that's 275. It's been a while since I've been there. But, uh, wow, 31 years. This is the time of year when I tend to give unsolicited marriage advice and just start talking about what we've learned. But uh, I've discovered that uh, the world is divided into two groups, um, those who need the advice and don't want it and those who want the advice and probably don't need it. And so rather than dive into that today, I've just decided to mention Happy Anniversary Kelsey. It has been a great 31 years, and we look forward to many, many more. Had a good morning, uh, got up this morning, joined in with a Zoom group to just kind of connect and pray. This little group's been connecting uh, twice a week since the pandemic hit, since we kind of went into lockdown, which we're not really under lockdown anymore, but we're still in kind of a very unique circumstance. And it's so interesting. Most of us didn't know each other very well at the beginning. We were just kind of thrown together by circumstance. And over the weeks and the months, we have gotten to know one another, we've got to pray for one another, we've talked to each other through house repairs and loneliness and community happenings, and uh, man, it's been great. There's just a sense of togetherness, even over Zoom, that actually works better than sitting alone. And the funny part is, again, most of us probably didn't know each other at all or very well when we started, and we're not really all at the same station in life, and we're all kind of all over the map. I have this idea that the church is growing to grow less niche-oriented than it has been. You know, I talk to guys who are planting churches, and they tell me, we're, we're trying to reach, you know, uh, 27 to 32-year-olds with income over this. And it's like, I think that's a—that uh, is probably a luxury that has gone away. We're going to have to break down and make community with the people we find ourselves with. And that's kind of what's happened. Um, on these twice-a-morning meetings, and have absolutely loved it. It's been very, very good. Hey, if you were listening to the podcast somewhere, which if you just heard me say that, you are, take a minute and take a picture of wherever you're listening. If you're in your car, if you're at your desk, uh, if you're at the beach, that'd be awesome. Take a picture and post it online. Post it in Instagram or uh, Twitter and, and tag me so I can see where people are when they're listening. It gives me somebody to talk to. Just give me a a shout-out and uh, a picture of wherever you are listening so I have some sort of idea of where both of my listeners are at. 
Now, before we dive into the bulk of what we want to talk about this morning, and I have actually quite a bit, we are going to do a, a strange tangent. Uh, because I noticed a couple of things this this week that caught me off guard. You can tell we're entering into those strange summer days when weird things happen. I used to talk about these things when I was on WTNT in Washington, D.C. I am no longer on WTNT because I don't speak Spanish. And uh, the station went completely Spanish, at which point it was clear that uh, my days were going to be short there because I didn't know the language. But I used to talk about just unusual things that happen in the news, and I ran across two things that I wanted to bring up. One, this is from KOLN TV in Lincoln, Nebraska. Nebraska farmer was draining the pond on his property, just getting all the gunk and all the bottom, gets to the bottom and discovers at the bottom of the pond, there's an ATM. Yeah, no, the bank didn't put it there. Somebody else put it there. Guy's name is Wynn Hall of Exeter. Now, if your Nebraska geography is rusty... Exeter is between Fairmont and Dorchester, southwest of Lincoln. And he started the process of draining the pool, the pond, which he uses to pump water to his fields. And the next morning, he goes out to check on it. And initially, he thought there's an object stuck in the mud. It was like a household appliance. Maybe somebody threw a washing machine down there or something he didn't know. But he's quoted by this saying, I thought, who would throw a refrigerator or a stove and put it in the pond? In fact, the deepest part of the pond. Why would that be down there? He took a picture and he zoomed in on it, said, that looks like an ATM. Contacted the Fillmore County Sheriff's Office, which sent out a team to haul it away. And his deputies told him that, sure enough, an ATM had recently been stolen in the area. So you're draining the pond and found like a money machine at the bottom of the pond. You have to ask yourself, who do you call? What do you do with that? Another thing caught my eye. This is in Louisiana. This is my, in my former place of employment. Now, I didn't work in this store. I worked in the mother of all stores in Springfield, Missouri, Bass Pro Shop Mecca. Okay, I used to, when I was in college, I worked for Bass Pro. Um, I knew nothing about fishing. I continue to know nothing about fishing. However, I did work at Bass Pro. Police in Louisiana were able to reel in a man captured on video swimming through a fish tank at a sporting goods store. This guy's 26 years old. He told KSLA TV that he plunged into the outdoor aquarium. I'm sorry, indoor indoor aquarium at the Bass Pro Shop last week to follow through on a promise he had made to followers on TikTok. He said that if I get 2,000 likes, I'll jump in the tank. I got way more than that, and I didn't want to be a liar. Well, bless God, he's a nincompoop, but he's a nincompoop with integrity. I mean, he's going to follow through. A video captured by another shopper showed this guy swimming through the tank before climbing out and running from the store with wet clothes. I would think that with wet clothes could probably be deleted from that because you would know that because he jumped in the pond. The guy who shot the video said, we heard a big splash and I thought it was one of the fish. My fiance said, somebody's in the tank. And we saw the guy swimming. Bass Pro has since filed a complaint with the police department saying it cost them money to empty out a 13,000 gallon aquarium and then clean it after his swim. I have so many questions about that. Like, can a guy... Just a guy in street clothes jump in a 13,000-gallon tank full of wildlife and contaminate it so badly that they have to clean it out. I, I don't know. I don't know. Wise was charged with making a simple criminal damage to property and released with a citation to appear in court. He told KSLA-TV he planned on continuing to make videos for his followers but cautioned others against doing, quote, spur-of-the-moment pranks. Another do-as-I-say, not-as-I-do. He's 26. 
He's on TikTok, and it makes no mention of a home address. If this guy is not living at his mom's, I am shocked. That's just, I have a mental picture. That's what I think is going on here. Okay, enough nonsense. Uh, enough of uh, just strange summer happenings. In a bit, I'm going to uh, go into a teaching on Acts 3 and 4 about what most of us know about the early church being a little bit inaccurate. In fact, most of what we know about the early church comes from art. But stained glass doesn't always do things justice. And so what was the early church like? What kind of container did God put his glory in that operated in such a way that it turned the world upside down with just uneducated fishermen at the helm? We are going to get to that in a minute. But before I do, I do want to tackle a question that came up on Instagram. Periodically, I'll ask people to put questions in. We'll handle them on the podcast. And they kind of divide up into different groups. There are troublemaking questions. These are questions that people ask just to to, uh, rile other people up. There are inside joke questions that make no sense to anybody else. There are legit questions that I answer sometimes on Instagram. And then there are some that are just too good to answer on Instagram. And uh, so those make it all the way to the podcast. This was the question I was asked last week that I said, oh, I'm going to save that one for recording. The question is this, do you think the COVID hype is politically motivated unto a mail-in ballot in November? Let me read it to you again. Do you think the COVID hype is politically motivated unto a mail-in ballot in November? To quote Frank from Oceans 12, let me break it down like a fraction for you. I want to look at this question and I just want to break it down here. The very beginning part of the question, do you think... Okay, I'm, I'm stressing that because the answer here is not a prophetic word. It's not inside information. It is my opinion, and I'm sometimes wrong. But like you, I never think I am. Tell them it's painfully obvious. That said, I'm pretty sure I'm right, and this is what I think. Now, let me say this as well. Being in a leadership role in one area does not make you an expert in all areas. I've been watching a pastor do regular... AMA, Ask Me Anything, and the intricate questions, theology, home repair, counseling, finances. It is remarkable the authority with which this person speaks about things that he's Googling along with the rest of us. So this is why I'm stressing. They ask, what do I think? Because that's what I was asked. That's just an opinion. That's all I have. The question was, do you think the COVID hype... Okay, stop again. We learn a little bit here about the asker of the question because I'm not sure what the hype is. Hype is pretty much energy that somebody else has on something that you feel is unwarranted. It's like driving on the highway, and the guy slower than you is a hazard, and the guy going faster than you is a maniac, but you get to decide that. You're the one who determines that. That's, so I think we kind of determine what hype is based on our own reaction and what we think other people's reactions should be. I don't see hype regarding uh, COVID. I see concern by medical professionals, I see confusion by most citizens, and based on how they view the government, that confusion manifests itself either in suspicion or in fear. And I see some people getting sick. Sunday, I asked people on our Zoom meeting to raise their hands if they knew anyone who was COVID positive, and a surprising percentage of people raised their hands. Later, I spoke with people in other parts of the country. They didn't know anybody, but there are people getting sick. So I don't see hype. I see uncharted waters. And when people respond to uncharted waters differently than we do, it's easy to think of them as asleep at the wheel or freaking out. They're either maniacs or something because their reaction is different than ours. So back to the question. Do I think 
the COVID hype is politically motivated. Now, having brought up hype into the question, I will say, I believe it is politically leveraged on both sides. Absolutely. Neither the right nor the left will allow a life-altering event to simply happen without trying to manipulate people to their side. If you're on the left, every statement the President of the United States makes is twisted and turned. If you're on the right, every statement that the media makes is patently false. If you're thinking for yourself, you know that neither of those things are true all of the time. So do I think these things are being politically twisted? Undoubtedly. Back to the question, do I think the COVID hype is politically motivated unto a mail-in ballot in November? No. I just don't. I think that the level of coordination for that to happen is so intricate. And we're laying that on the shoulders of a government that is divided and can't do anything quickly. I think that is some movie-level Machiavellian uh, conspiracy plot that... I just don't... Now, are there people who would want that to happen? Yes, I think there are people who would want that to happen. I think there are others who it is their worst nightmare, but I see both the far right and the far left throwing um, dispersions, aspersions against the electoral process in preparation, I guess, for losing. I, I think either side is preparing for the chance that they could lose so they can protest and say that the whole system was somehow flawed. That's, what I, that's honestly what I think. So I don't think anybody is working towards a specific goal. I think they're all hedging their bets, and they will continue to try and leverage the process, both for the right and for the left. You're like, well, that's not very clear. It's not very clear. We, the things we don't know are way more than the things that we do know at this point. And that's what I think. We're going to dive into Acts 3 and 4. This is from our Zoom group church that we met with on Sunday morning. If you are interested in joining us, you're looking for a place to land, uh, you can go to zoefoundationkc.com. It's just a placeholder. It's not the name. The group doesn't have a name. But if you can go to zoefoundationkc.com and sign up, we send out a weekly email that keeps you posted on when and where we connect online. And uh, we would be happy to have you join us diving into a new series called Little Rough and Ugly that talks about the early church and what it was really like. This was recorded Sunday morning, all about Acts 3 and 4. Uh, Welcome. If it's first time with us or maybe first time in a while, uh, good to see everybody that we can see, and good to have the rest of you with us. If we can't see you, we're glad you're here. Um, diving into a new series called Little Rough and Ugly, where we're going to talk about the New Testament church and what it looked like and how it actually worked and what were some of the, the characteristics of it. I want to think a little bit this morning about how we measure the difficulty of something. How do you decide, well, that was hard or that was easy? Um, usually it's a combination of things. It is a combination of uh, what I call the task and time, meaning what we have to do and when we have to do it. Uh, for example, uh, the simplest task around our house might be 
walking down the stairs, which is simple most of the time, except at 6 a.m. when you're trying to go down the stairs and not wake up the dog, in which case the task and the time together make things difficult because once you wake her up, she demands all the attention. So in establishing a new church, what we're choosing to do here is a challenging thing under any circumstances. It would never be easy. And then because of events that are out of our control, we're doing it at a very interesting time. And I'm not saying that it's easy under any circumstances, but it's certainly unique under the circumstances that we're doing it here. The task and time make this difficult. Nobody writes books about how to start churches in seasons like this. Had we done this a year ago, there would have been all kinds of models and seminars that we could have drawn from. Now, they wouldn't always work, but they had worked at some point and somewhere somebody had got it to work. And because we had those models, it's easy to understand how the calling of the church sometimes took a backseat to the method of the church. Because if we thought we got the methods right, it would always work because it had worked somewhere. Now, those models and those seminars are not being held right now, in part because gathering is difficult, but also because what they would have said six months ago would be ineffective today. It's not that there is no way to do what God is asking us to do. It's just that the way isn't obvious. We are off the map when it comes to navigating on how to establish a congregation and really even how to do church. We're in a perfect storm of a challenge and a lack of proven models. But I've got to tell you, I'm excited about that because storms clear the air. It's this actual challenge that will keep us close to his word and attuned to his spirit because everything else that we might fall back on has proven inadequate. And so in some ways, as hard as this all is, this is a distinct advantage. It has been the graciousness of the Lord to invite us into something challenging in a season when all of the normal ways of doing it are broken. That's, good. That's the graciousness of God. Now, I woke up this morning, and uh, uh, I will try and reenact the first three minutes, or th not three minutes, the first three seconds of my consciousness this morning. It was, I wake up, and I went, Zoom. Like, uh, you know, I'm just, oh, we're gonna, this is the way we're going to do it again is Zoom, Lord, uh, we got to do Zoom. And I laid there and I was praying about it because I think if I'm not excited about this, nobody's excited about this. Like, this is terrible that I'm not excited about doing it this way. And I felt like the Lord was speaking to me and saying, be grateful that you are doing it this way. Because about the only thing that you guys can do as a group that is really effective right now are prayer meetings. Like, that's about the biggest thing that we can do is we can gather and pray. Now, we, we are doing that multiple times a week, and actually, they're really good prayer meetings. I'm super excited about them, but I don't know what we would do if we had options to do other things. We might find ourselves full of all kinds of other busy activity, and I think we all want to do what Jesus said. We think we've always wanted to do it. When Jesus said, I want a house of prayer, he placed us in a timeline of history where prayer has been our primary activity right now. We say that's all you can do. That's true, but really, it's all he's asked for. So times will change, and we will be able to do other and more things, but we will always do this because it has been able to be built into our DNA. We find ourselves in this season being people of prayer like we might not have been in another season. So no matter which way the pandemic goes or the economy or the culture goes, prayer is being written into our DNA. Now, in auto racing, they talk about cars that are converted to speed 
or cars that are built for speed. You take a Chevy, you put a big motor in it, it's converted for speed. You take a Ferrari, it is built for speed. You can make any car fast, but if you start with fast in mind, you get a better car. I want to build a church for prayer, not build a church and then convert it to prayer later. And God's actually allowing us to do that. He's allowing us to build something that prayer is a main part of its activity. That is a gift from God. And we're examining other ways of doing this. We're talking about, well, how many people can we gather in one spot, but still how many can join via, via Zoom or via other uh, uh, platforms. I spent some time with Micah Blosser this week talking about novel ways that we can do that. He's got some great ideas. But because of how the Lord has forced us to do this, years from now, people will look at this congregation and they'll say, wow, you guys do a lot of prayer meetings. And we will say, it's always been that way. And it's easier to build that way than it is to convert to it. In a burst of advice in 1 Thessalonians, uh, 1, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, along with instructions about generosity and honor and affection for the prophetic, Paul writes a three-word phrase. He writes, pray without ceasing. I can imagine him laboring over that phrase. Finally, just deciding the simplest version was the best. Pray without ceasing. He thinks if I write that, they can't twist that to mean anything else. So even as the hand of God is forming who we are and circumstances around us are holding us back from adopting everything that we thought was normal in how church works, but isn't practical and isn't really all that effective, we scan the horizon and we look for other models. Okay, how are other ways that we can do this? Where are the blueprints for the church that you're building right now? And I find myself increasingly going back to the book of Acts in the early church and asking the Lord, what was it like? to see 3,000 conversions in a day before public address systems and before social media. How did you see 3,000 people in a day come to the Lord? God, what kind of container did you prepare to change the face of the unknown world inside of a generation? What did you build in that time? What characteristics did you bake into the early church that allowed them to grow and to thrive against all suspicion of the religious right and the overreaching political arm. Like in that, in that tension, God, what did you build? What did it mean to be your friends when you didn't have any friends, Lord? And in reading the book of Acts, I've kind of come to this decision, and this is a little painful to admit, but if the apostles opened a church nearby, we would think hard before we would attend. I don't know how quickly, I think we would say, do we like them? Oh yeah, we, we like them. We love what they're doing. You want to go to that church? I don't know. No, I, I don't think I want to attend that. Acts 5, 13 talked about people. It says none of the rest dared to join him, but the people held them in high esteem. We like them, but I don't know if I want to go there. Why is that? Most of our thoughts about the early church have been formed less by the Bible and more by art. Most of what people think about when they think about the early church, they think about what they've learned, particularly in, in mainline churches, in, uh, from stained glass. In a stained glass window, the characters are two-dimensional, and they're surrounded by this kind of otherworld glow. I can almost imagine Peter or Paul walking into a cathedral, seeing themselves represented in stained glass, and saying, who's that? Oh, well, that, that's you. That's how we envisioned you. We portrayed you that way. And them saying, well, that's not the way it was. I actually kind of look wimpy in stained glass. I'm a little more buff than that. And I've never actually had a halo. And at the time that you pictured us in that stained glass, we were actually fighting. 
That's not what it was like back then. If stained glass were accurate, it would be chipped and cracked and a little dusty. The Church of Acts, even in its tremendous power and influence, was often, often little, rough, and ugly. And if the stained glass were accurate, we would think twice about, do we want to be a part of that? Nobody makes stained glass as little, rough, and ugly as the church was. So in the next few weeks, I want to address the idea of the early church, make sure we're informed about what we're really talking about, and even start asking God if he would stir in us the things that made them great, even as they were little, rough, and ugly. Because if we can get a sliver of the presence of the Lord, I mean, if we can just tap into the anointing that they had and how they did things, our littleness and our roughness and our ugliness do not matter. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 3. We're going to be in Acts 3 and 4 today. And uh, we're just going to go through, not the entire book over the series, but different parts along the way, and uh, see what the characteristics, they just kind of pop out to us. Now, of course, the book opens the very beginning with the Ascension. We've talked about that in recent weeks. And then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, Peter's sermon, where thousands are converted and needed to be discipled by a relatively small number of believers in the upper room. So two characteristics we just want to talk about this morning of the early church. First of all, they were unapologetically confrontational. There are two aspects to the story of Jesus, who, as he lived and died on the cross again so that we could live forever, and they are the idea of comfort and confrontation. Now, Jesus offering people comfort along the way caused him a lot of issues. He was constantly at odds with the religious people of the day because he offered comfort to people who they felt did not deserve it. In John 8, they brought Jesus, an adulterous woman, and they goaded him, trying to get him to participate into stoning her, which would have been allowed by law. But rather than do that, he challenges them with their own sin until they all kind of walk away. And then with incredible tenderness, he turns to her. And in John 8, 10 and 11, he offers her comfort. He stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The ultimate place we find ourselves in after responding to the, an encounter with Jesus is one of comfort. He's not looking to demolish us. He's not looking to punish us. He calls us higher, and he makes us free. There is a comfort in the gospel. Paul prayed that the Corinthians would understand what that comfort was like. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. Comfort is a part of the gospel. But if we make our presentation of the gospel only about comfort, we don't tell the whole story, and we actually lead people into making peace with sin, and suddenly, because we've comforted them but we've not challenged them, they're in an alliance with the devil rather than having made peace with God. The message that Jesus just wants you to be happy is incomplete. He wants you to be reconciled to him. It is possible to be happy and stupid. It is possible to be happy and far from God for a while. It is not the will of God for your life just to be happy. It's for you to be reconciled with him. And if we only talk about the message of the comfort of the gospel, we don't actually get people free. When you read the Bible, comfort is always attached to Jesus's message along with confrontation. 
Immediately following the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Peter is preaching extemporaneously to this crowd that's assembled. And there's a thread in the storyline here that illustrates how confrontational the apostles could be. In Acts 3, Peter and John are on their way to the temple for a prayer meeting. And as they go, they pass a man who has been lame since birth. He is a beggar. Now, it's similar. You know, we pull out of a parking lot at a Walmart or something. We see a guy standing there with a sign. And many of us, the first thought through our mind is, how did he get there? Like, what, what are the processes by which you end up standing out in front of Walmart with a cardboard sign? And if, it's not, if we're not careful, we find ourselves judging or, or making assumptions about that. But we wonder, because in our culture, there are safety nets, and it's hard to imagine how someone would get to that point. In this culture, there were no safety nets. There were no programs. Begging was the safety net. In fact, the term beggar was less of a derogatory term than we would think and more of a description of what they did. They begged. Now, to truncate this a little bit, the beggar asks them for some coins, and Peter, who has just come off preaching and seeing 3,000 people come to Jesus, must have felt a little residual shundai on himself, and he tells him, I don't have any money, but I'll give you what I have. And he grabs the guy, and he heals him in a moment. Now, if this were a standalone story, it would be great. But it's a chain of events that spans two chapters out of this 28-chapter book where somehow Peter and John go from seeing a lame man by the side of the road and healing him to eventually preaching to a crowd right there, seeing another 5,000 people get saved, being arrested, and ultimately preaching to the council that has them on trial. This all happens, boom, 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 boom. I can imagine John going, how, how did I get here? Like, I was just on my way to the prayer meeting. We were on our way to our prayer meeting, and, and somebody gets healed, and all of a sudden here and now, 5,000 saved, and now I'm in front of this council. Who gets arrested on their way to church after stopping to do something kind? Now, tempers were high, and the religious leaders were in a tizzy, because not only were the disciples promising eternal life, now they were reaching into social programs. How do you stop a force that can set people free and heal their bodies? Now, Jesus has a little bit of, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, Peter has a bit of a reputation. He's a rough-hewn fisherman. He is not schooled in the way of politics or even in ministry, but on the boats and the docks, that's where he came up. And he talks fast, and he talks big, and he grabs weapons, and he cuts people's ears off. He's not afraid of rattling cages. Now, if there was ever a time, you would think, politically, to try and de-escalate the situation, this might have been it, because they find themselves arrested. But Peter, who has a history of talking first and thinking later, begins to live and minister out of his personality under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The way God wires him is exactly what God needed at this point. He is confrontational when it comes to sharing the gospel. Now, just a little sidebar here. The Lord has a purpose for how you are wired. Some of you, particularly with very strong personalities, you have actually spent years trying to dilute your personality because everyone tells you to be more like Jesus, you have to be less like how you were made. Now, there is a sanctifying aspect to how he makes us, but he wired us. And Jesus knew what Peter was like when he called him, and he called him because he knew he would need someone confrontational and bold. So when the man is healed and they get to the entrance of the temple, the crowd gathers and Peter is given an opportunity to address them. He did not get up and tell them, you too can be healed. Comfort is coming. 
No, instead he tells them, we did this in the name of Jesus, and then he addresses their sin and their disconnect with God. Acts 3, 14 and 15. He's preaching to them now, and they've all come to him because he has healed this man. He tells them, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Peter tells them, we healed this guy in Jesus' name. Jesus, the one you traded for a murderer, then you killed him, and God raised him up, and John and I saw the whole darn thing. We saw what you did. This confrontational message was the message that inspired 5,000 people to get saved. We don't see mass conversions because we don't mass message in a way that allows people to wrestle with the conviction of sin. We tell them that things can get better, but we don't give them hope that things can be different if they repent. The whole gospel is not the story of your life getting a little bit better. It's the story that your life can be made new. And if nothing changes, if we don't acknowledge our sin, then that never happens. Some of us actually still struggle with besetting sin issues because we have made peace with that behavior in our mind, and no one in our circle has loved us well enough to confront us with our behavior or the truth. Why, why don't we do that? Why don't we lovingly confront one another in our sin? I think it has to do with the base issue of politics, not national politics, but relational politics. We are afraid of how people will react. Much of the political spirit that rests on some believers is in part because of their fear of other people's reactions if they did the right thing. We are so concerned about being unelected as someone's friend that we fail to stand as a faithful witness and actually as a true friend to them in confronting them in their failure or in their sin. So from that passage, John and Peter find themselves arrested. Now keep in mind, they were just walking to the prayer meeting. They just stopped and saw a guy healed. They preached to thousands. They get saved. The whole sequence of events seems a little bit ridiculous. But rather than getting frustrated with getting arrested in this situation, Peter interprets his trial as a preaching meeting. It's almost like he thinks that everything that happens to him is an opportunity to speak about the message of Jesus. So even in his trial, he goes, oh, it's an opportunity to preach. That must be what they brought me here for. That's actually good theology. Every trial that you encounter is a potential preaching meeting. Now, in this case, you would think he didn't even consider the precarious situation he was in because he was asked by the authorities, why did they do these things? And in typical Peter fashion, he doesn't hold anything back. Acts chapter 4, 8 through 12. They're now before the council. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, if you're really calling us on the carpet because we saw a guy healed, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, may, whom God raised him from the dead, by him this man is standing before you as well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has come the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If people are not confronted, they are never convicted. It doesn't mean we're always as abrasive as Peter was, because the Bible says the kindness of God leads people to repentance. But too often we express the kindness without explaining 
the feeling of conviction because we're so afraid of condemning people, we never tell them that they're actually on trial before the Lord, and there is plenty of damning evidence. If that were you, would you not want someone to tell you? Conviction is a gift because responding to conviction is what sets people free. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul confronts the Corinthian church. And it's not like he confronts them with general misbehavior. It's not like, you know, hey, you guys, you need to quit what you're doing. No, he's very specific and it gets awkward. He confronts them with immaturity and with sexual immorality. He gets very specific. It was a bitter pill to swallow, but that confrontation leads to repentance. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul revisits the idea in chapter 7, 9, and 10, talks about that bitter, that bitter pill of conviction. He said, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. He goes, yeah, I know you felt bad when I said all those things, but you know what? Your heart's clean now. That godly conviction led to freedom. Now, I'm not proposing that we become unnecessarily controversial, although just living as a person of faith will grow more controversial as time goes by, and it will stand in stark contrast to the darkness around it. But I am for confrontation that produces grief over sin and leads people to repentance and to comfort with the Lord. The early church was unapologetically confrontational if it helped people be reconciled to God. If we do this right, there will be people who come to us in eternity and say, thank you for telling me the truth because I didn't see it for myself. The early church is confrontational. Now, miraculously, Peter and John were released from custody. So they dodged a bullet, so to speak. And when they thought they might be imprisoned or physically tortured, they were let go. Those things ended up having later. But for the moment, they were free. When you are free, when, you are, when you've just escaped from a very dangerous situation, what is your response? If you're like me, you usually say something like, Lord, if you work that out, I will never get in that situation again, right? I will never do that again. A bunch of friends took me uh, rappelling years ago. And uh, we rappelled off of Backbone Rock in, in Tennessee or Eastern Virginia. I'm not quite sure which side of the line we were on. It's 70 feet. Now I realize that people, you know, rappel off a thousand foot cliff, but 70 feet is a long ways when you're really not that crazy about this whole idea anyway. And I remember backing off of that and I was going to back out. I was going to get up there and I wasn't going to do it. And then a little 12 year old girl went in front of me. And so I was shamed into bravery and I felt like I had to do it. So I clip in and I check all the knots nine times as if I even know how this apparatus works. And I go and I back off the cliff. And in that like maybe one second where you're leaning back until the ropes catch you and you realize you're going to be suspended. In that one second, I had a tremendous time of prayer. And I, my prayer basically was, you know, Lord, if you get me down safely, I know I'm getting down. Gravity is on my side. I'm going down one way or the other. But if you get me down safely, Lord, these, you know, I'll do this, 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 and this, this. How do you feel when you escape danger? When you're just, Lord, I'm so grateful. I'll never put myself in that situation again. Usually gratitude and a commitment that will never go there again go together. But eventually Peter and John are released from custody 
and they go back to the other believers. We discover this in the, uh, the story that they're not just confrontational, they also are what we might consider recklessly bold. Not just confrontational, but recklessly bold. Because the early church's response to danger was a curious one. They didn't tone down their behavior. The brush with danger made them even more bold than they were before. Scripture says that they returned to their own people, and a prayer meeting erupts. Of course, that's, you know, that's all they could do. They were on Zoom. And so they go back into prayer immediately. I'm telling you, corporate prayer is the established biblical response to challenges. It's the model all through the Bible. It only fell out of favor with Christianity when Christianity became the pervasive, overarching culture, and we didn't need to pray because we thought we were in charge. But in the early church, they knew they weren't controlling things, and they knew they had to pray. And so they pray, and they start by recapping the whole incident to God. They even, they even quote Psalm 2 back to him, Acts 4, 25, and 26. They're praying, and they say, But you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed ones. And they, you can hear them adding, and in this case, that was us, Lord, because we were in danger. Why do, they, why do they rage against you? They said, you know this would happen. We know the word well enough, Lord, not to check out when hard times come, because we know that this is our part in history. They weren't complaining about persecution. They were recognizing their place in the timeline of God. We get so short-sighted that we don't realize our place in history sometimes. Even people who are long-time planners are rather short-term when they think about the plans of God. From long before where we stand, the Lord knew we would stand here. 25, 30 years ago, when some of you came to the Lord, the Lord knew there would come a time when you could not meet for a season. And he said, no, no, I'm forming them for this place. They, they have a place in history. And they prayed and they said, we recognize our place in the timeline of God. Lord, this is in part what you talked about there. So how do they pray? Do they pray for protection or for self-preservation? Or Lord, can you just get us out of here? Maybe, you know, send us somewhere else. No, they pray in Acts 4, 29 and 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They say, Lord, now that this has happened and you've got us out of trouble, God, will you give us boldness to do it again? Will you allow us to press in, to continue to be confrontational, to continue to minister to people? We're not asking you to never put us in that situation again. We're asking you to keep the fire alive in us that we would continue to be bold. There is something in a parent that wants to reward boldness, and God is the pattern for all good parenting. My second son, Grayson, is 23 now, and uh, he is fearless. I'm not saying he's always right. I'm just saying he's rarely afraid. And he's been like that his entire life. When he was five, one night I'm putting him to bed and he's agitated about something. And I don't really understand what he's agitated about. And at five, he can't talk about it very well. And finally, he blurts out, Dad, I just want to have a popsicle sale for poor people, but I just want to give them the popsicles. And I said, Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. You want to give popsicles to poor people? And he lights up. He goes, yes, yes, that's what I want to do. I'll give popsicles to poor people. Can we do that? 
So I went out, I bought three boxes of popsicles. Next Saturday morning, we drove down to Washington Park in Cincinnati, where uh, the homeless people congregate and live. This is not where they hang out. This is their home. And as we drive up, I'm watching him in the mirror, and I'm kind of thinking he's going to bail out on this idea. He's five. But, you know, nice try, little guy. But as we pull up, I'm watching him, and he's getting his game face on. He's getting more and more serious. And I barely get the truck parked when he opens the door and hops out of his car seat, kicks the door open with his foot, and without taking his eyes off me, he goes straight out the door yelling, give me some popsicles. So I'm climbing out of the truck and I'm tearing the boxes open and I'm following him. I'm handing him popsicles as fast as I can. And this little five-year-old guy, now Grayson, you have to remember when he was a little guy, when he got very serious, his voice got very low. And so he's walking from people that are, are laying in the, on the ground on a, on a bunk that they had slept in. And they're talking to themselves and they're pushing grocery carts with all their supplies in it. And he's walking up to grown men laying drunk on the ground and he's giving them a treat, probably something nobody had given them in a long time. And he's telling him in his best little five-year-old, very serious voice, God loves you. I wanted you to have a popsicle so you'd know that. Here, ma'am, I want you to have a popsicle. And meanwhile, I'm chasing after him and I'm wiping tears on my eyes because fathers love to see boldness for righteous causes in their children. Can you imagine the heart of the perfect father who sees his children doing good and then asks for strength to do more good? Does he reward that? I think he does. Or does he try and tell them, you know, be reasonable or talk them out of the mission that he hoped that they would embrace to begin with? And God answers in Acts 4, 31, when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God looked down and said, you want more of that? I'll give you more of that. That's what you were called to do. And from this point, the church takes off like wildfire through the known world because a father sees children leaning into their calling who, and he will always answer that prayer for more boldness. Grayson called me a couple of days ago. Now, he's not five anymore. The same boy that gave popsicles to homeless people same boy that spent all the money he had in Washington, D.C. when he was eight or nine years old buying burritos for homeless people, calls me a couple of days ago and he says, Dad, do we have any extra blankets? Now, Grayson hasn't lived at our house for years. So when he's saying, do we have any extra blankets, what he's saying is, do you have any extra blankets? I said, uh, yeah, yeah, we've got, we've got some extra blankets. Why? He tells me, well, I met this homeless guy and he's great, but somebody just burned all of his stuff. And in my ears, I'm hearing this five-year-old kid say, I just want to give popsicles to homeless people. I just want, dad, I just want to buy burritos. Like it's, what father would not reward that? Dad, Grayson, we will find you blankets. We will find a way for you to do what you're called to do. The boldness of my own son, even at times when I think he should be more cautious, moves my heart to help him. What does the prayer of a bold church asking God to stretch forth his hand and do great things mean when our Holy Father is perfect? Now, we're not facing threats like they did in the book of Acts yet. None of us have been hauled in front of the city fathers. We've never been interrogated, although all of that could come one day. But we do face challenges. And in this season of challenges, if we ask boldly, if God is the same as he was, he answers. Because those are the prayers that he wants us to pray.
Father, we come to you as this little group. Father, we embrace the moniker of little, rough, and ugly. Find ourselves in a difficult season, doing a difficult thing, hungry for your presence, Lord. Hungry for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that would give us the strength to be confrontational for you when you ask it, to extend comfort when it's time to do that. And through all trials and all difficulty that we would continue to ask, Lord, that you would spread forth your hand and that you would grant your servants boldness to speak your word, that we would see people healed and we would see people come to know you. And even in the areas of our own lives where there is besetting sin, we would see freedom like we have never seen before because you grant the prayers of your children when we're bold and we ask in accordance with your name. Lord, I thank you for each one gathered here this morning. Pray a blessing on each household. Lord, we eagerly look forward to the time when we can gather together. But until that time, we do not despise the days of small beginnings. And we say thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gentle prayers of the saints, the verses that we heard read at the beginning. We thank you, Lord, that we are speaking into this young grandson who lost his grandfather for opportunities to represent you wherever we go. Lord, show us what it could look like. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the third cup of coffee. We are here every week as well as on Zoom a number of times a week. You can go to zoefoundationkc.com. Thanks.